martial arts this week. Uh, it's kind of like boxing where um, you know all the contestants, they, they just hit each other with their fist until uh, apparently the, the rules I saw were somebody just has to give up and then the round is over. They, they hit each other with their feet and their knees and their, their elbows. It's also called cage fighting because uh, they won't let you out until you uh, cry mercy. You can't fall over the edge like you can in standard boxing or, or wrestling. And as you can imagine, uh, cage fighting is a, a particularly rough sport. Contestants, they're often knocked out. They, they tear ligaments. They break bones. Uh, rarely, but, but occasionally, they do uh, die. They punch and they kick and they beat until someone gives up. And we know throughout history they aren't the first to engage in this kind of sport. One source I read that the art of boxing, uh, whereby two men enter a contest to see who can withstand the most punches from each other, dates back as far as at least the earliest civilizations and is probably one of the oldest sports of its kind in the history of fighting. And by the day of Paul and Timothy, where Gary read for us this morning in 2 Timothy, you know, these kinds of fighting contests would have been uh, making our modern-day cage fighting pale in comparison. They, they wrap the hands of their fighters in, in leather, and then they would attach metal into that leather. So it wasn't like a, a boxing glove where it was supposed to cushion the blow. It was supposed to rupture the skin and stick. That was the goal of what they were doing. And the source said, unsurprisingly, boxing matches in Rome often ended in the death of the loser. And it's with that backdrop that Paul writes these words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 19. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them, you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. And later in this letter, Paul repeats himself, fight the good fight of faith in 1 Timothy 6.12. And in his last letter to Timothy, Paul writes, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith in 2 Timothy 4.6. You know, the good fight that Paul is talking about isn't casual. He's talking about something that's brutal, something that's bloody, something that regularly ended in death. You know, why would he use this analogy when he's talking to Timothy about what he's tasked with doing. Well, Paul was using this image of this cage fight, of this fight to the death on purpose. Boxing matches in the day of Paul and of Timothy, they were matters of life and death. When Paul was writing to Timothy, he was essentially telling him, what you are doing matters. Lives are hanging in the balance. Timothy, if you don't do your job, People are going to die. People are going to go to hell. So fight. Fight the good fight. You stand your ground. You do everything in your power to win the day. Because if you don't, people will lose their souls. And as if to drive that home, Paul tells Timothy, some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith in 1 Timothy 1.19. You know, people had shipwrecked their faith. They'd lost their faith. They were going to hell because they decided their faith wasn't a matter of life and death to them. They were casual about this fight, and so they destroyed their faith. You know, back in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, around chapter uh, 36, we read an intriguing story of a Jewish king. He was casual about his faith, too. The king's name was Jehoiakim. 
Uh, and God had had Jeremiah write down a prophecy that condemned this king, Jehoiakim, and his kingdom because of the evil that he had allowed to take place in the kingdom. And God sent a warning to Jehoiakim and to the nation of, of Judah to repent or else. Uh, but instead of taking that seriously, instead of understanding that warning as a matter of life and death, he was casual about it. Jehoiakim, he decided he was going to show his contempt for God's prophecy. He ordered a scribe to come into his chambers with this scroll, read the prophecy in his presence. And after three or four columns of the scroll of the prophecy had been uh, uh, read aloud, roughly equivalent to three or four pages from a book, the king took a knife and he cut out that entire section of the scroll. And he crumpled it up and he threw it into the fire. And Jehoiakim did that to the entire scroll until all of the prophecy had been completely destroyed. Jehoiakim, he cut the sections of the prophecy that he didn't like, and that turned out to be pretty much all of it, because he didn't take its warning seriously. He thought it was casual. And over the centuries, people have, to one degree or another, done the same exact thing to God's word with their own knives. For example, Thomas Jefferson, he created his own personalized Bible with a similar technique. He titled the finished product, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And what he did, he took these several different copies of the English Bible, and he literally went through the gospel, and he take, took a, a, a pen knife, and he cut out the sections he liked. And then he pasted those sections into his journal, and they became his book. They became his Bible. And then he left out the parts that he rejected because he felt those were contrary to reason. And you see, Jefferson was offended by the idea that God would reach down into this world and interfere with it. And so he cut out all the parts that seemed like that's what God was doing. Anything where God interfered with the affairs of men, anything that, that smacked uh, uh, being like a, a miracle was contrary to reason to him. He left out anything that spoke of God's miraculous power. So the feeding of the 5,000, the, the various healings that Jesus did. Of course, uh, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Those all didn't make the cut. More recently in the 1990s, about 150 religious scholars got together uh, for what they called the Jesus Seminar, where they would come. Uh, they were secular scholars, and they were going to come together, and they were going to vote on what was believable in the New Testament. And they voted on the Gospels as to whether the certain verses actually spoke of true events as opposed to stories they felt the Gospel writers had made up. And they voted by means of colored beads. Red meant, yes, Jesus did that. This is a, a historical event. Peak, or, excuse me, pink meant that this is possibly something that Jesus did. Gray meant maybe, and black meant it definitely did not happen. And by means of vote, they rejected many parts of the Gospels that they considered over the top. They rejected things like the passage where we read last week, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. They felt it was too exclusive. The very idea that Jesus would say, there's no way unto the Father except through him, well, Jesus couldn't have said that. That's too offensive. They rejected Jesus' parable about the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25 as being too judgmental. And of course, they rejected the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That was too outlandish to be believed. Now, why did they do that? Why did 
Jefferson cut up the Bible and make his own? Why did these scholars more recently cut up the Bible to make something that they were willing to believe? And very simple, they did not believe all Scripture was God-breathed. It wasn't all a matter of life and death to them. They believed the Bible was a, a man-made document filled with errors, made-up stories, and they threw a bunch of mud at Scripture to see what would stick. And there's no substance to their accusations, but that doesn't stop them from making them. You won't be able to find the errors they claim there. But by contrast, back in 2007, San Antonio uh, Express News, they reported on new textbooks, math textbooks, that were going to come out the next year throughout Texas. And they found 109,000 errors in the books already purchased for Texas schools. One second grade math book, for example, had four plus seven equaling 10. 110,000 of these examples over and over. And the point is, you know, errors happen. They, they exist in books that we read all the time, way more than we're, we're probably used to. You can read through. It always amazed me, you know, reading through um, doctoral theses and, and things like that where there are grammatical errors throughout it. It's like, what have you been doing all this time? But that happens. We're, we have weaknesses. We fail, but the Bible doesn't. The Bible is the most accurate book you're going to find, and in spite of the constant attacks of skeptics down through the ages, it remains the most accessible book, the most accurate book in the world, and the Bible has lasted as long as it has because it is a God-breathed document. God literally wrote the thing. Or you could say he, he ghost wrote the thing. You know what ghost writing is, right? That's where the, the celebrity pays for uh, a writer to do something or write something in his name. And the book is named for the celebrity, but their book was actually carried by the ghost writer. And that's exactly what happened with Scripture. You know, the King James Version uh, of Second Peter one twenty one says, Prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved or they were carried by the Holy Ghost. And catch that. The, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit, was a ghostwriter of the Scriptures. Isaiah, he may have had his name on the book, but it was the Spirit that carried him along. Matthew, he may have written his gospel, but it was the Spirit that ghostwrote his book. Paul may have written letters to the churches, but it was the Spirit that dictated the words. And that's actually what Paul claimed even when he was speaking, not even when he was writing things down. When he spoke he said, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words in 1 Corinthians 2.13. But Paul told Timothy, the proof was in what Scripture is capable of doing in the lives of those who, who read it and are instructed by it. He said, all Scripture is God-breathed. And so it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, the word of God has power to transform our lives and remake us and, uh, better than we were before because of its authorship. Because God breathed it, it's useful for all those things that Paul listed. David put it this way, your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes in Psalm 119, 98 through 99. Scripture changes people, and it even changes whole civilizations, because God has given it the power to do that. This summer, I listened to a, 
uh, a presentation about some missionaries that are working in the Philippines. And the man told of a, a person who had such a passion to go there. Uh, he went down to the Philippines on a, a shoestring budget, and uh, something in what they did struck a chord in the native population. So that today, 25 years after he started, there are nearly 40,000 Christians and 700 congregations of the Lord's Church there. But not only was that mission helping to convert people to Christ, but the teachings of the Bible made such a powerful impact on the culture there. The speaker, he talked about arriving in part of the Philippines back in the 70s, being overwhelmed by uh, the stench of sewage and garbage as he got off the plane. And many of the the people there were living in unsanitary conditions. But as the, the civilization became influenced by the teachings of Scripture, the land began to change with it. The government began establishing modern drainage systems and, and trash control, and the leaders of that city were so convinced of the powerful effect of the Bible, they said they credited the, the change in their culture to the Bible, that they had it reinforced to teach in their schools. And the point is, the Bible, when the Bible is taken seriously, People change. Nations change. Cultures change. The Bible is the good news that can transform all of us. In fact, that's what gospel means, right? Good news. The gospel message is full of God's grace and God's forgiveness. But now that we've said all that, if the Bible is good news, that's what gospel means, why would anyone want to cut out parts of it? You know, why would people want to eliminate something that is good? Well, people cut away things from the Bible because it isn't all good news. You know, some of the Bible is bad news for many people. You know, just like the, the judgment on Jehoiakim, the Bible has words of condemnation, has words of warning of God's impending judgment. God tells people you can't always do what you want to do because certain things are not acceptable and if you do those things there will be consequences for example first corinthians says do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of god do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of god in first corinthians 6 9 through 10 you know people who live those kinds of lives or who uh, approve of those kinds of lifestyles squirm when they hear words like that and very much like to cut that out of the gospel. This is not good news to them. It's not what they want to hear. And so they'll either avoid God's word by not reading it or, or not being with the church or they'll try to find a church that will tickle their ears, or they'll even cut out the scriptures that make them uncomfortable. And they've gotten out their pen knives to cut away at God's word just like Jehoiakim did. And that's a dangerous thing to do, because what this book has to say is serious. It's not just here to encourage us or motivate us or make us feel good. It is here to show us a way of life and the way of death. And altering what it has to say, it's like taking an instruction manual for a nuclear weapon and saying, I'm going to cut out the part that says how to disarm it because I'd rather press the red button than the blue button. It does not work. Peter warned the Christians of his day about messing with Scripture, especially Paul's writing, 2 Peter 3, 15 through 17. It says, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you 
as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away from the error of the wicked. You know, Peter, he was warning the Christians of his day, and he's warning us today, stay away from the men with pen knives. Don't listen to those people because they are going to drag you away from Jesus. They might give you something nice to hear, but they aren't leading you in the way of life. Peter described these as ignorant, as unstable people, lawless people who are going to be destroyed. And that's exactly what happened to Jehoiakim. God destroyed him. God told Jeremiah that Jehoiakim's body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and the frost by night. I will punish him and his children and his attendants for their wickedness. I will bring on them and those living in, in Jerusalem and the people of Judah every disaster I pronounced against them because they have not listened. Jeremiah 36, 30 through 31. That's not good news. And when people like Jehoiakim bring pin knives to a fight with the Bible, the sword of the Spirit, they're bound to lose. And that makes sense if you think about it. If you had a choice with fighting with a pin knife or the sword of the Spirit, which would you choose? And these people, the Bible says they've already lost. God says they will be destroyed. But even worse, the people who listen to them will lose too. And that's the bad news. But notice why God brought judgment on Jehoiakim and all of Judah. It said, they had not listened. They refused to love the truth and so be saved. And that's why we have to be so committed to standing firm on what God has to say. We do nobody any favors by trying to water down the warnings and the judgments of Scripture. Our faith has to be a matter of life and death to us. We can't play at church. We can't uh, pretend that this is just some social gathering for us. People could go to hell and that should move us to fight. Now the question is, how would you or I know that we've fallen into the trap of complacency? How do we know that we aren't taking this fight like a matter of life and death? How would we know if we've begun to view the church as just some social organization? How would we know if we've forgotten how critical the church is to us? It's possible, you know, it's possible to fall into this mindset without even realizing we've done so. You know, notice Paul is warning Timothy not to let this happen to him. He says, This I charge, I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymen Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may not, or they may learn not to blaspheme. You know, here's the deal. We have an enemy. You know, Paul delivered these two men over to that enemy. We have an enemy, and his objective is to destroy us. He will do whatever he has in his power to bring us to our knees. And so everything we do here is critical. Everything we teach, everything we preach, everything we talk about here is vital to our survival. Everything we do or say or think outside these walls has a powerful effect on whether Satan can infiltrate and damage our church family here. If a people, if a church forgets that Satan desires to destroy them, 
We tend to play at church. This becomes a, a social event once a week rather than a rallying cry before we go outside these walls back into a war. This is the time once a week where we get a chance to look at each other. We get to see all the damage that has been inflicted on us for six days leading up to now. And we get to patch each other up so we can go back into the fight. If we don't take that responsibility seriously, people are going to get hurt. You know, here in his letter to Timothy, Paul tells him he can't do that. His job is the same job that we have uh, and each and every person in this room has today. Look at the Christian next to them and do whatever it takes to prepare them for the fight ahead. You know, the first thing that Timothy tells, or that Paul tells Timothy is this, don't be complacent towards lies. Prepare people with the truth. Command certain men, he says in 1 Timothy 1.3, not to teach false doctrines any longer. Do it. Don't back off. Don't worry about hurting someone's feeling. Do what has to be done because this is a matter of life and death. We aren't doing anyone any favors by feeding them lies. The second thing Paul tells Timothy is to realize that the aim of our charge in 1 Timothy 1.5 is love. Uh, issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul is saying, you know, this training that you're doing, Timothy, do it in love. Your goal is to prepare them, not destroy them. You do that with truth, but you do it with love as well. Now, there are people out there who are happy to engage in, in discipline with the intention of driving out of the church any form of impurity, but they don't do it with love. They run people out because they never want to see them again. That's not what Paul's telling Timothy to do here. And to those people, Paul writes the third principle that he shared with Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. 1 Timothy 1.15. And we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And this preparation we're doing isn't discipline from a position of superior righteousness because we don't have that. I mean, what we do have is love and truth. And we must confront false teachers and people who do immoral things in the church because we recognize the stakes of what we are facing. And notice what Paul says. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme, 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20. And what does it mean? I handed them over to Satan. It means... Paul let them walk out the door. He said, okay, you're allowed to do this, but you're going to recognize how dangerous this is because I'm going to let you go. He wanted to teach them not to blaspheme. In his instructions, Paul is telling people, if you love others, you will confront them when they do wrong. A loving Christian doesn't want someone else to go to hell. And so they will fight the good fight and do what is necessary to win them. Paul writes to the Galatian church, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or else you may be tempted. Galatians 6.1 you know, God wants us to prepare each other for the fighter head because this is a matter of life or death. And there's only one tool strong enough for the task ahead. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, the Bible is 
the weapon we take into this fight. It is our source of truth. It is our source of love. And it is our source of humility. The Bible is good news, but it's more than that too. God cannot give us the good news of Christ's love and salvation if we ignore the bad news. You remember we read in 1 Corinthians earlier, do not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. That is the bad news and we have to recognize it. But in the next verse, Paul tells us the good news. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6.11 If we listen to God, if we realize that God saved us to avoid sin, then the good news is that we will be free from that sin. But we'll never appreciate that truth. We'll never appreciate the stakes of what we are facing if we don't realize that this is a matter of life and death. I was a sinner and I would not be able to inherit the kingdom of God. But in the name of Jesus Christ, I could be washed and I could be equipped to wage a war on sin. Christ put the, the full armor of God on me. He put the, the sword of his word in my hand so I could go outside of these walls and I could fight a war for eternity, a war with life or death consequences. You know, the good fight that Paul told Timothy to wage, it wasn't something casual. This isn't just a, a motivational pep talk for Timothy. This was a call to arms. It, it was meant to rip Timothy and us Christians today away from complacency. You know, Paul was saying to Timothy the same thing that we need to hear today. What we are doing here matters. And more than anything else we do in our lives, lives are hanging in the balance. If we don't do our job, people are going to die. So fight. Fight the good fight. Stand your ground. Do everything in your power to win the day. Because if you don't, people will lose their souls. That is what is at stake. The souls of you and your friends and your family and your coworkers and your neighbors, everyone you know, that's what we are waging war for. And I pray that we will be as successful as Paul. You know, as his life came to an end, he was able to write back to Timothy and say what Gary already read for us. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. If you want to win this life or death fight this book tells us how put your trust in jesus let his blood wash away your sins and then pick up the sword of his word to wage a war against sin until that glorious day when he will return with a crown to put upon the head of those who have been waiting for him if you want to win the war now is the time we're ready to help you just come forward as we stand and as we sing